would invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Colossians chapter 1. As we begin today with you a series, Lord willing, on the book of Colossians, our message is simply entitled this morning, Introduction to Paul's Epistle to the Colossians, and we hope to consider verses 1 through 8 of Colossians chapter 1. While we have spoken from the book of Colossians a number of times and quoted from the book of Colossians a number of times, in our tenure here at Flint River, we have not ever taken up an exposition of this particular epistle. And so I'm excited to begin this with you today. It's been an an epistle that's been in my mind, on the back burner of my mind, for about two years. To give you the backstory of our hope to discuss this with you, as the year changed to 2020, of course this is nearly the end of 2021, as the year changed to 2020, it was my hope to go through this book with you here as we try to go through at least one exposition of an epistle a year. I hope to share however long the Lord lets me be here on Wednesday and on Sunday. I hope to go through at least all of the New Testament with you. And truth be told, we've gone through most of it as far as at least one gospel account and Acts and the epistles. I hope to go through all of it with you before the Lord calls me home or gets rid of me one way or another. And we've gone through a number of the the Old Testament books of the Bible together. We'll soon have gone through all of the minor prophets, and we've gone through the book of Daniel and quite a bit of the book of Isaiah and all of the book of Proverbs. A man could spend his entire life preaching the Word of God on Sunday morning and not sufficiently go through the New Testament alone, let alone all of the Word of God. But that's our job. And that's what we hope to do with you. As we begin this epistle today, I'll tell you, as we alluded to, this has been on my mind for a couple of years. I read through this epistle once or twice a day for the period of a month in preparation to go through it with you. And then something happened in the world. Something happened in our country and in our community in early 2020. We had a pandemic and we had a shutdown. And because of that, our mind was steered in other areas. We went through the exhortation in the book of Chronicles to repent and to call upon His name and pray and turn from our wicked ways and He will heal our land. We then was very convicted that we need to present encouraging things to God's people. So we went through the book of Ruth together and... This has been on the back burner since early 2020, and if the Lord would be our helper over the coming weeks, we would like to share with you some thoughts from an exposition of the book of Colossians together. And so if you want to go home and read this epistle, you want to study the portion that we'll be looking at each week, I would encourage you to do that. It's a very encouraging epistle, and it's a very... Christ-exalting epistle. To be as short as it is, just four chapters, it's one that really places our focus where it ought to be as followers of Christ, securely on, centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll save reading the first eight verses for after our introductory remarks, but we will read that together in just a moment. As we introduce this epistle to you today, this is one of what we refer to as Paul's prison epistles. So as we study this book of the Bible together, understand that Paul writes this not from the comfort of a pastor's study, not from the comfort of a home office, not from his desk in his computer room. Of course, Paul didn't have a computer room being 2,000 years ago. There was no such thing as a computer, but just to set our minds and contrast the ease with which American Christians write or study, Paul writes this from a prison. He doesn't have the freedom to do what he would love to do, which is to go and to visit churches and visit new communities and preach the gospel to them, to share God's word with them, to love on them and to care for them and to be what a minister loves to be in the world. Paul writes this from prison. 
Paul isn't in prison for tax evasion. He's not in prison for stealing. He's not in prison for committing a crime of violence. Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel of Christ. And if you read the accounts of him being imprisoned, he was imprisoned a number of times in his ministry that you can read of in the book of Acts and history, church history reports for us other times that he was imprisoned after he is believed to have been released after the close of the book of Acts. He goes before Nero a second time, he would be imprisoned, and it would be that time that the Apostle Paul would be executed for his faith, beheaded for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, for preaching the gospel publicly, for denying, worshiping according to the the dictates of the Pharisee of that day, but also the cult, the Roman cult of emperor worship. He would be imprisoned. He would be beaten. He would go willingly, just like his Lord, his Savior, as as a lamb dumb before the shears, opening not his mouth. He wouldn't fight back as he was arrested. He wouldn't take out a weapon and attempt to escape that. There were times that he was wise as a serpent, as we talked about recently from Jesus' words. He would escape certain times. He would appeal using his his rights as a Roman at times, but Paul never fought back. He never drew a sword and attempted to go out in a blaze of glory, but he simply went as a lamb dumb before the shears like his Savior Jesus. And here he finds himself imprisoned, and as such, he has heard of this church of the Colossians, this church at a city called Colossae, and he begins writing to them to help them. Now, this was a church, as we've alluded to, that Paul never visited. It was certainly one that he didn't found, though some speculate that this church at Colossae was one that was an offshoot of the church of the Ephesians. We don't know that for sure. We don't know their origin story for sure, but there have been some who believe that This church came from a church that Paul did establish, namely the church at Ephesus. As we introduce this to you today, understand that Paul writes to this church and his writing, this epistle is, as so many of them are, in fact all of them are, circumstantial. What do we mean by that? There was a circumstance in the church at Colossae that Paul was addressing. He doesn't simply decide to sit down and write a letter to a church in another community or in another city and say, you know, I've heard of you, I want to write to you, I hope life is great for you, God bless you, and Godspeed. No, the epistles that Paul writes to churches were to address issues that the churches had to face in their own ministry. And we might wonder, and I've often wondered this, what would Paul write if he were to write an epistle to the churches of America. Because when Paul writes to the Galatians, he doesn't just write to a church in Galatia, but he writes to the churches of Galatia. He wrote that to an entire region of churches. What would Paul say if he were to write a letter to the churches of America? I imagine that there would be far more rebuke than there would be commendation if Paul were to write a letter to the churches of America. Now, we might be thinking of liberal Christianity or progressive Christianity, and certainly Paul would write and rebuke liberal Christianity. But I have a feeling that even those of us who consider ourselves to be conservative believers, there would be much rebuke to us as well for how sidetracked we are continually about everything else that goes on around us in our particular nation. But let's get more specific than that. What do you think Paul would say if he were to write an epistle to the churches of Madison County? Or perhaps even if he were to write a letter to the church at Flint River? Thoughts such as that, if you want to know one thing that terrorizes preachers in their mind in the middle of the night, that would be one of the thoughts. You know, you read the early chapters of the book of Revelation, and Jesus addresses seven churches of Asia Minor, And only one of those churches went through unscathed. But these sound churches, Ephesus, for instance, very sound church. And he commends all of their soundness, but then he comes to their problem. They had left their first love. You begin thinking about that. Jesus speaking and writing to his churches, and even the sound ones were rebuked. I don't think that Flint River would make it through without some degree of rebuke. And those are the things that really 
really afflict my soul and make me to be worried and concerned. And at the end of such a, a thought exercise as that, usually what I come down to is, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. As Paul writes to the church at the Colossians, this is circumstantial to say that there's a circumstance or a situation in this church that needs addressing. In a sense, this is going to be relevant to us today. This is going to be relevant in the sense that as we begin to dig through this epistle together, we are in America today inundated with things that take our eye off Christ. And that was the problem here in Colossae. Specifically with them, there was some sort of philosophy threatening the church. And we find that word used in our translation in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, Beware lest any man should spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after what? After Christ. Because over and over in Colossians, Paul is saying our focus ought to be on Christ. If I spent more time this week with my mind concerned about anything in the world other than Christ, then what Paul wrote to the Colossians is relevant to me. You say, well, that applies to other people, not to me. Not so. That applies to every single one of us. As a follower of Christ, the central focal point of everything that I am to do in the world is Christ. And I remind you what God said to the Israelites, I am a what God? A jealous God. God is a jealous God. While we don't know, there's no clear answer as to the specifics of the trouble. We can glean several clues and hints through the book of Colossians as to what the trouble was that they were dealing with. Number one, in chapter 2 and verse 18, notice this statement. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. Have you ever read over that statement without realizing the significance of that expression, worshiping angels? If I were to tell you today, let no man beguile you, in worshiping angels, you say, yeah, I don't really have a problem with worshiping angels. But in Colossae, in Paul's day, there was actually a cult that was devoted to the worship of angels. So one of the issues that Paul is confronting here is a cult in Colossae in that day that worshiped angels. Number two, look at verse 21, and we'll expand on all of this in the coming weeks. There were people who sought to make free Christians live in subject to ordinances. And then we find the parenthetical statement in verse 21. Touch not, taste not, handle not. Touch not, taste not, handle not. That sounds like good advice, doesn't it? Sounds like the things that we tell our children. Touch not, taste not, handle not. There are things in the world that you don't want to touch, you don't want to taste, you don't want to handle but that parenthetical statement is actually not an encouragement, but a rebuke of a mindset in Colossae that we might today refer to as legalism. In other words, there were people in Colossae who believed that they could make God happier with them by obeying rules. Now, how many of us, when we think about our Christian discipleship, think, I need to obey these rules so God is pleased with me? Well, certainly there are things that if we violate, God will be displeased with our conduct. But when God looks at us, is His pleasure with you by virtue of what you do or what Christ has done for you? Well, by virtue of what Christ has done for you. I don't want God to look at me and see what I do each and every week and be happy with me based upon what I do. No, I appeal to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want, Christ, I want God to look at me through Christ now, I want to do things that are pleasing to him, and I want, to, I want to hear those sweet words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But at the same time, we should understand that legalism is contrary to the gospel of Christ. Religiosity sometimes makes us feel good as followers, but God is not pleased with us because of religiosity. And we find so many times that when we 
embrace such a mindset as that, we become sanctimonious, we become judgmental, we become harsh. There were people in Colossae who sought to place God's disciples under yokes of bondage of rule-keeping, or as Paul would say here in verse 20 of chapter 2, why, why, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, are you subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not? In other words, why, if you are free in Christ, are you a slave to keeping rules and commandments? And these are commandments of men. Now, by the way, does that mean that if we be free, let us go sin that grace may abound? No, that's not what we're talking about. In fact, this same epistle would exhort us to mortify sin in our own lives, to put sin to death. But perhaps greater than any other epistle, this one draws the distinction between killing sin to the glory of God, putting Christ as the preeminent center of our lives, and thinking that we please God by obeying man-made rules. Touch not, taste not, handle not, as he would say. That's problem number two. And Paul refers to this again, as we already considered in Colossians 2 and 8, as a what? A philosophy. Now, when we say philosophy, we have reference to ancient Greek ways of thinking. And by the way, this was a city that was very much affected by ancient Greek culture. So the translators use that word philosophy to have reference to the mindsets of these people. It may not have been the reasoning of Socrates or Aristotle, perhaps the Epicureans and the Stoics that we read about that argue with Paul in Athens. It might have been a philosophy like any other philosophy. We all have a personal philosophy, and though this is not philosophy, there are philosophies that come with being a follower of Christ. It may not be Greek philosophy that they're dealing with here when Paul uses that word, but certainly there was a philosophy, a way of thinking, a mindset that had infected this church and at this point in their existence was threatening them. Threatening them. Understand, false ideas threaten churches. And if we allow anything that is contrary to the gospel of Christ to creep into our minds, into our thinking, into our doctrine, and into our pulpit, our church, any church, is at risk. And that's why Paul writes this epistle to a church that he hasn't even attended. As an apostle, he is concerned about them, and he wants to straighten this issue out and through that, to deliver them from the problem that they're experiencing. Some have wondered if this idea of angel worship plus rule-keeping plus philosophy is some sort of a proto-Gnosticism. You know, the Gnostics were people that taught that everything in the world that's physical is evil, and everything in the world that's spiritual is good, and so they drew this distinction between that which is physical and that which is spiritual, and they believe that Christ is a lesser deity and that he gives knowledge and through knowledge you have enlightenment and through enlightenment you can transcend to a greater deity and be one with him. And certainly that's heresy. It's founded by one Simon Magus that we read about in the book of Acts, a false teacher, a heretic, and one who was by all indication of his father the devil. And the reason that people believe that is because of how Christ in his deity is exalted, and also his humanity, as his death is spoken of so often in Colossians, in addition to the touch not, taste not, handle not, rule-keeping that the false teachers here in Colossae had taught the Christians. Certainly the Gnostics taught, if you thought that everything physical was bad, then touch not, taste not, handle not would certainly be a portion of your doctrine that you taught. If this pulpit was evil because this pulpit is physical, it's neither. It's neither one nor the other. It's just wood. But if this pulpit were evil because this pulpit was physical, certainly I would touch not, taste not, handle not, right? You would want to embrace such a rigid asceticism that you wouldn't want to have anything to do with anything of this world that's physical. Well, truth be told, there were physical things that were good because there were physical things that were sanctified in the Old Testament. And there are spiritual things that are evil. Not everything that is spiritual is good because the Word of God speaks of evil spirits. And the Word of God speaks of 
invisible forces in the world at work, principalities and powers, the rulers of darkness in this world in the book of Ephesians. So Gnosticism could not be further from the truth along those lines. Some believe that Paul is confronting some sort of Gnosticism or proto-Gnosticism in the church at Colossae. Others believe that this is some sort of a hybrid of Jewish, Greek, and Eastern religious notions. In other words, they take some of the rule-keeping from Judaism, they take some of the Greek philosophical thought, which includes early Gnosticism, and then some Eastern notions, and they mesh it all into one, and that's the doctrine that the church at Colossae is dealing with in this day. You know what's amazing about what I'm about to say? It doesn't matter what the problem is in a church, whether it be Gnosticism, Arianism, legalism, the Galatians heresy of the Judaizers that taught to keep the law, the Pharisees in Acts chapter 15, those who teach salvation by works or touch not, taste not, handle not, or worship angels or any other heresy. The beautiful thing about what we're going to learn from Colossians is that it doesn't matter what the problem is. The solution is the same. What is the solution to any problem that a church could ever experience? The solution is Christ. Put your eye on Christ. Study Christ. Exalt Christ. Worship Christ. Learn of Christ. Christ is the one remedy to any problem a church ever has. You say, let's try that out for a minute. Let's say a church is prone to legalism. Simply studying the rebukes of Christ to the Pharisees and the gentle nature of Christ to sinners struggling with their sin and mourning over that, and legalism is excluded. What about trouble in the church between people who are angry at one another and bitter to one another. Well, simply learning what Christ said to the church about judging one another and forgiving one another and working out problems, and the solution is found. When Paul confronts church trouble in the epistle to the Philippians, you know the foundation of the solution to their problem? It wasn't a program or a 10-step issue or a book on how to work out trouble or some sort of counseling. It's simply, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ. What's the problem to church troubles? Christ. Or the solution, rather, to church troubles? Christ. The solution to the problem of church troubles is Christ. And so it doesn't matter if they're dealing with Gnosticism. What's the answer to Gnosticism? Christ or Legalism, the Judaizers of Galatia with their rules, the solution is Christ. How about the heresies that Corinth had fallen to, denying even the resurrection of the body at the end of time? Do you know what Paul reasons by virtue of? Christ. If we rise not, then Christ was not raised. And if Christ was not raised, we are what? Yet in our sins. Every single epistle Paul writes when he confronts a problem, if you read it, the answer to the problem is Christ. And so it is here. More than the other epistles, he extols Christ. I want you to be so madly in love with your Savior Jesus Christ when we get done with this epistle that you just can't stand it anymore that you're just walking around looking up saying, I'm just tired of being here. Everything in this world is worth nothing. I count it all but dung, like Paul says in Philippians. I just want to be with my Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think, I think if we get to that point as we study this epistle together, we can say that it was, it was worthwhile and I'll count it a success. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 8. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. 
Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother. Now, we'll come back and we'll go through this introduction verse by verse with you. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all saints. Now, you notice how many times he's used the word Christ just in four verses. Did you catch that? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae or Colossae, Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for you all, praying with you all, since we heard of your faith in Christ. Four verses, five times. If you want to know what Paul is all about, there you go. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. And his life is about the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The very words that Christ might have the preeminence come from this epistle to the Colossians. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, bringing and bringeth forth fruit, as it does in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Now, backing up and considering the introduction and some of the meat of this text, what we want to do is look at his introductory remarks. Then we want to look at his reference to Epaphras and who this man is. And then lastly, we want to consider the meat of this introduction, the passages of Scripture that we find in verses 4 through 6, okay? So that's what we're going to do, the introduction, the reference to Epaphras, and then lastly, the meat that we find in this passage, verses 4 through 6. As we begin this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timotheus, our brother, Paul begins this with the same introduction and salutation that he writes in many, if not all, actually all of his other epistles. Now, when I say that Paul uses a general salutation, notice this detail from the closing remarks of the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 17. Notice this with me. The salutation of Paul, which mine own hand, with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. Paul says, the salutation of Paul, that's a greeting, with mine own hand, meaning that Paul had actually written this salutation, it's believed by scholars that Paul at this point in his life was struggling with blindness. And so... There's one epistle, and he references how large of an epistle he had written. And some people take that literally, that literally it's a large, largely written epistle because he can't see. Those of you that have struggled with your eyesight, you can imagine, you can sympathize with what Paul deals with. And I, I look out at people that wear glasses and contacts. Many of you have dealt with vision problems in your life. So Paul many times uses a scribe to write what he writes to churches, and we'll comment on who that was in the book of Colossians in a moment. But you notice here in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle. So I write, what is that salutation? The verse after, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. In every single epistle that Paul writes, you fact check me on this. In every single epistle that Paul writes, the language, a variation of the language, grace to you, grace be to you, will be found. That's his salutation. So how does Paul greet people? Grace to you. Grace and peace to you. And as we've said many, many times, as Paul writes to preachers, we find an additional word, the word mercy. And to me, that screams volumes about how Paul viewed himself and other ministers. 
Because when he writes to churches, it's grace to you, grace and peace to you. But to preachers, he says grace, peace, and mercy. Preachers need mercy. Preachers need mercy. Because we are flawed creatures who have our own sins to deal with every day of every week of every year. And so as we proclaim the gospel of the God who is of purer eyes than to even behold iniquity, we need mercy. We have these wound-licking sessions on Sunday afternoon where we think about all the things we said wrong and the things we said backwards and the things we could have said better. And, you know, Lord, can I have a mulligan on that one? Can we do it again? Can we try it again? And sometimes preachers think, I never want to go up in the pulpit again. I just want to quit. And some of us are like, Lord, let me try it again. Put me in next time. I can't wait. Maybe the next time will be better. Preachers need mercy. Paul writes, and you notice, he includes in verse 2 the salutation that he puts in every single epistle. And I want you to notice that. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has this writing style. Now, some of his epistles have a different style. Colossians has a little bit of a different style than some of the epistles that he wrote. If I go back and read articles that I wrote 15 years ago, I had a different writing style 15 years ago than I do now. In fact, my writing style now is not at all because I really don't write much right now. I just don't write at all. So you know, maybe the Twitter generation, I deleted my Twitter page a couple of weeks ago. Praise God, it was the best thing I've done in months. But constraining your thought to, what, 140-something characters, I think they bumped it up to 180 characters, it kind of makes everybody have this condensed, very brief way of speaking, almost like we say everything that we say in Proverbs sometimes. Well, Paul's writing style regardless of the subject matter to a church, regardless of whether it's early or late or middle of his ministry and the, the various distinctions of the style with which he writes, always include some variations of this grace unto you. Even the book of Hebrews, by the way, mentions Timothy and includes this salutation, grace be unto you. One of the many reasons that people traditionally have ascribed the book of Hebrews to Paul. Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, again, is writing from prison. And you notice here that he writes, and along with him is one that we're very familiar with, Timotheus or Timothy. Timothy's a young man that Paul comes to. So many times people explain Timothy as a man that was converted by Paul, but if you read Acts carefully, Timothy's a disciple when Paul gets to him. But what Paul does is he takes Timothy under his wing. He begins to train him, to mentor him. And Timothy accompanies Paul on all of his journeys from that time forward. Paul would leave him places. He would send him places. But Timothy is like a son unto him. He uses the language of father and son as he writes to Timothy. This is probably one of, if not eventually, his best friend here in this world. Of all the people that Paul wrote to and gave his swan song, it was Timothy. I fought a good fight, I finished my course. Timothy's here with him, and because of that, some people believe that Timothy is actually the one who is the scribe that Paul utilizes to record this epistle. It's very rare that Paul, again, writes an epistle with his own hand, and so he's using a scribe. While it's believed that Timothy is the scribe that Paul uses... It's also believed that, as we read in chapter 4 and verse 7, this epistle is actually delivered by one Tychicus. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. So Paul uses Timothy to write it, and then he uses Tychicus to deliver it and to express Paul's will and his desire to this church at Colossae or Colossae. To the saints and faithful brethren, you notice the audience of this epistle is very specific. In fact, it's always this way. The word of God is written that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. 
Whatever we read in this epistle to the Colossians, it is written to God's children. Not only is it written to God's children, it's written to baptized, professing believers, disciples of Christ. Notice, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. He's writing to a church. So every exhortation that he has is under this umbrella of exhortation to save people. Making that distinction as you read Pauline epistles will help you understand the Word of God. This is not written to unregenerates. It's written to God's children. We need to understand that. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, as Paul introduces his thoughts to this particular church, one of the things that he does that he does so many times is talk about his prayer life for them. And the next message that we'll get into, we'll look at a pastor's heart in prayer. What is it that a pastor prays for? I imagine that the Apostle Paul spent hours a week, hours a week in prayer. Can't you, can't you imagine the hours that he would have to spend in prayer? Thank you, sound man. The, the amplifier keeps cutting off. He drops his head in shame. I'll speak up when it does that and try to pause so it doesn't scare you to death as it cuts back on. Those of you that don't know, we have two amplifiers here. One is a home stereo receiver from the 90s, and the other was, is actually an 8-track. There we go. The other one's actually an 8-track from the 70s. And the 8-track from the 70s is the reliable one. So anyway, one day we'll upgrade some of that equipment, but it seems to work fine most of the time. Today, it, I don't know, maybe it's the humidity. It's just in a bad mood. It didn't want to get out of bed like a lot of you. Alarm clock went off this morning, and I'm like, it still feels like 5 a.m., and it still looks like 5 a.m., and I could roll over and go back to sleep, but nonetheless, it's the Lord's day, and so we're in church. All right. Back to the text. Paul prays for them, and as he prays, he remarks on their faith and the love that they have to all saints. In fact, the pastor, one of the things that the pastor Epaphras has conveyed to Paul is the love that they have to one another, to him in the Spirit of God. This is a loving church. Paul doesn't waste space, and Paul does not engage in flattery. So when Paul says that, I've heard of the love that you have to all saints, Paul is saying that, church, you are a loving church, and I have heard about your love. This is a very loving church, the church of the Colossians. And he commends them. Epaphras, again, has spoken highly of them. Let's Introduce him into the mix, verses 7 and 8. You also learned of Epaphras. That doesn't mean that they learned who Epaphras was, but they were taught by Epaphras. They learned of Epaphras in the sense that he has been their pastor, he has taught them. Paul doesn't know this congregation, but Paul knows the preacher. And so he has spoken with his preacher. He's the dear fellow servant who is for you, a faithful minister of Christ who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. He says, I've talked to Epaphras. He has talked to me about your love, and I love that man. He is faithful. He is a fellow servant. Now, what does Paul consider himself? Some sort of a Lord? Now, he's an apostle, and he's got authority, and he can do miracles through the Spirit of God that he doesn't do himself, but he gives all the glory to God in that because it is the Spirit that works through him. He's written the New Testament epistles through inspiration of God, and yet when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, he's simply a fellow slave of Christ, just like Epaphras. He says, this man is a fellow servant, he's a minister, he's your pastor, he's faithful, and he's told me about the love that you have for one another. And so we read quite a lot of detail in those verses. We know it's written by Paul. He's in jail. As he writes it in jail, Timothy's there transcribing it. The pastor of the church here is a man named Epaphras. This is a loving church. It's a faithful church. Not only does he write off their faith, certainly that 
implies more than just their belief, but their faithfulness to serve Christ in verse 4. Since we heard of your faith, and this church is pastored by a faithful man, maybe, conjecture, maybe Epaphras reaches out to Paul. He says, look, we're dealing with an issue here, and I need some help. I could see a faithful man like Epaphras do that. We're dealing with a heresy in this community. We need your help. We need your insight. Tell us, Paul, tell us what you think. All right, let's go into the meat of these first passages that we want to consider. And we skipped over them to give you what's on each side of them. He says, we've given thanks to God and the Father. We've prayed always for you since we heard of your faith and of the love which you have to all saints for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it does also in you since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. Let's begin to dig into the concepts in that. Now, this is Paul's introduction. You know, it's kind of funny the way that we introduce ourselves. It's some variation of, hey, how you doing, right? When Paul gives an introduction, it's verses long, and it's not simply, hey, I've heard about you. I love you. Congratulations. We're praying for you. Oh, no. It's, I give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have to all saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. This is all the same sentence, by the way. It's all the same sentence. Which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it does in you since the day you heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. This is still the same sentence. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit, period. That's an introduction. This man knows how to make an entrance, right? It's like Shakespeare has arrived. The writing of Paul is beautiful. Isn't that beautiful language, especially in the King James Bible? What beautiful language is that introduction? So much better than the 144 characters or less, right? Or the, the text emoji language. I think some of us have resorted to simply communicating through GIFs, animated GIFs and emojis and memes. You know, I, Jesse and I can literally carry on conversations without actually writing a word. And, and this is not hypothetical. We'll go back and forth. It might be a chain that lasts hours. And we know exactly what we're saying. Beautiful language. Let's dig into it. You can preach sermons, plural, from this introduction. First of all, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. The hope which is laid up for you in heaven. We talk a lot in the Primitive Baptist Church about hope. And this is for good reason. Paul wrote in the book of Romans chapter 8, Despite the sufferings of this world, and Lord knows we've seen suffering in this world over the past two years. We've seen suffering in this world since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. This is a broken world, a fallen world. Paul was a man that was well acquainted with suffering as he was a, a disciple of Christ that was beaten multiple times. He was stoned and left for dead. He was whipped across the back with a scourge. His body was scarred, scarred through the beatings that he had received. There were times that he was shipwrecked and floated in the sea. And yet Paul says in Romans 8 that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that's revealed the glory that he'll receive in heaven. And then he says, for we are saved by hope. Hope is strong if hope is able to deliver you when you are floating on driftwood, on a prison ship, the driftwood of a prison ship that is sunk in the sea because of a storm named Eurachlodon. Hope is strong 
If it delivers you when you are being whipped across the back with a Roman scourge for having faith in Christ. Hope is strong if they're beating you with rods and that enables you to get through it because you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you trust that heaven is waiting for you. Hope is strong when they're stoning you and rocks are pelting you and they leave you in the street as dead and they think you're dead. And the disciples come and pick you up and take you off and nurse your wounds. Hope is strong. If you can be in prison at midnight with your yoke fellow Silas, and you begin to sing praises to God at midnight, and an earthquake happens and the jail cells are opened, and thinking you had escaped, the prison guard goes to take his life, and you stop him, you preach to him, you convert him, and you baptize him. That's biblical hope. Hope isn't a wish. Hope isn't a pipe dream. Hope is an earnest expectation. You yearn for it. You long for it because you know in your regenerated heart that one day you're going to be with him in glory. And that hope delivers you. If you ever find yourself in a situation that seems unbearable as if it has no end and you simply cannot take the emotional or physical pain anymore, hope, hope is what will get you through that trial. Hope, the expectation that when this world ends, all of the grief, all of the suffering isn't even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in you. You know what? There are times when God's people are so in despair that they yearn even to die. You read of men in the Old Testament. Elijah was one, Lord, just take me now. I don't even want to be in this world anymore. And God comforts him. He encourages him. There's mild rebuke involved and he tells him, get back to work because this life is but a vapor that is here and gone. And then we enter into the shores of eternity where there is no pain, sorrow, suffering, or death. And we are saved by the hope of that day. Paul called it the hope of the resurrection as he is brought before men in trial. Hope. A hope laid up for you in heaven. The object of our hope is the power behind the hope. What are we hoping for? And in whom do we hope? Well, the same one that is the object of our faith, the object of our trust. The reason that hope is so powerful because it's laid up for us in heaven. That is the object of our hope. Christ Jesus in heaven, as he said, I go to prepare a place for you and I'll come again. In my father's house are many mansions, many places of abode in this house. And I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, I'll come again and I'll take you to myself. It was common in the Jewish day. For a man, as he enters into that contractual agreement of marriage, to go and to prepare a place for his bride and then come again and take her and be man and wife. It's exactly what the Lord Jesus is doing. He's prepared a place for us on the cross and he's in heaven. He'll come back again when the last heir of promise is born again and he will deliver us from this world. We will be rescued from here. Even if your body is deceased, he will raise it again and you'll be with him in glory. Because hope is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. This passage sounds so similar to me as 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10. Notice that very carefully. You have a hope which is laid up in heaven... And you heard of heaven, whereof, whereof, you heard, now where implies a location. So, whereof means that heaven is that which Paul is, of which Paul is writing. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Christ 
has laid up a hope for you in heaven, and you have heard of heaven, you have learned of heaven as a place through the preaching of the truth of the gospel. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, we read that God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That's the hope being laid up. Before the world began, God elected you in love. He sent His Son to die for you. His Spirit has given you life but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Listen, who hath abolished death. Christ single-handedly abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The life and immortality that Christ has given us is brought to light or manifested through the preaching of the gospel. You learn of it. You hear of it until, until he's abolished death in your soul, until he's quickened you when you were dead in trespasses and in sins. The gospel is foolishness to you. But once he has given you life, when you hear the sweet message of the gospel of Christ, it brings this life that you have within you to light. It does it initially when you hear it, but I trust that it's happened over and over again as Assurance has been yours as you have heard the message of the cross of Christ. I hope your souls have been assured today as we learned about hope. Notice they have a hope laid up in heaven, and they've heard about this hope. They've heard about heaven before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it does in you, since the day that you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. Would to God that all of his children would know and hear and learn of the grace of God in truth. Because so many times the message is, yes, there's grace, but for God to be pleased with you, touch not, taste not, handle not. But the gospel of Christ is that Christ Jesus by himself has made one sacrifice forever and forever perfected them that are sanctified. He took the handwriting of ordinances that was contrary to us out of the way, nailing it to his tree. He that knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The grace of God in truth is the grace of God as it is exclusively in Christ Jesus. Jesus plus nothing. Grace plus nothing. Which is coming to you, Paul says, as it is in all the world. Now let's focus on that for a moment. This expression, this word of truth that you've believed, which is coming to you as it is in all the world. Think about the unity that that statement brings. Paul is one who has this faith and believes this gospel. Epaphras is one who has this faith and believes this gospel. The Colossian church is one that has this faith and believes this gospel. And Paul says it's come into all the world. There's something that Colossians had in common with Ethiopians, Acts 8, with all the different nationalities of Acts 2 that were converted on the day of Pentecost. There's something that these Colossians had in common with Paul, a Hebrew of the Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin, who's a Roman, of this city of Tarsus, because he was Saul of Tarsus. They had in common in Asia Minor, places like Laodicea, but also Eastern Europe, as you consider Philippi and some of these other communities, even, even carnal Corinth. There were people there, uh, there that had something in common with these people because the gospel had gone into all the world. And you just see this all through the language, the unity that these people are to have in the gospel. Paul, Epaphras, Timothy, Tychicus, Onesimus in chapter 4, the brethren and the saints at Colossae and every other place that the word of God is believed and the grace 
The gospel of grace is believed in truth. There is unity. There's unity. Let me tell you, I've said this so many times, and I'll say it, Lord willing, as long as I have an opportunity and a mind to do so. We ought to have more in common with a faithful lover of Jesus Christ who lives in the middle of the African savanna than we do an unbeliever in America that shares our recreational or political values. Because what we have with that person is more important. This gospel is coming to all the world. Now, this is a statement, and to bring our thoughts quickly to a close. This is a statement that's threefold. Number one, the gospel has come into all the world is a fulfillment of prophecy. A fulfillment of prophecy. Well, from the Old Testament, many, many Old Testament passages, as we've studied on Wednesday night, we did, in fact, this past Wednesday night, consider passages from Zechariah about the bringing in of the Gentiles and how the Gentiles will worship God. Where are Gentiles? Well, they're scattered through the world. That's everyone who's not Jewish. And so as we read in Isaiah, he shall neither fail nor be discouraged till he set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait on his law. In Genesis chapter 10, we read the isles of the Gentiles were divided. And so here we are as an isle of the Gentiles in the United States of America. 2,000 years later, the gospel going into all the world is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's also a fulfillment of New Testament prophecy. What did Jesus say in Acts chapter 1 before he ascends to glory? You'll be witnesses of me. First where? Jerusalem. Then where? Judea. Then where? Samaria. What does he say after that? Even unto the uttermost parts of the earth, of the world. The gospel going into all the world is a fulfillment of prophecy. Number two, it is obedience to the command of Christ. He told them in Mark 16 to go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In the book of Matthew 28, he said, Go teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And so the gospel going into all the world up until that time, as it has had opportunity to go, is the obedience to the command of Christ. Now, sometimes people use that passage to say that the commission of Christ is completely fulfilled. Well, the counterpoint to that that I would give is that Matthew 28, go teach all nations, baptizing them. That is the only passage in Scripture in which we are commanded and authorized to baptize. If that commission ended with the apostles, we've got no business baptizing anyone. That commission stands. Now, it's given primarily to the apostles and through them to the gospel ministry of every age to go, to teach, to baptize, and to teach. And Lord willing, that's what we've been doing here for the past hour this morning. That is our authority. That is when he commissioned and sent his men into the world to preach the gospel of the cross of Christ. And so, number three, the gospel has gone into the world this is the part, a part of the ongoing work of the church even today. To go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. To teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. You want the pattern? The book of Acts is there for that reason. Because it patterns on every page the apostles going out, constituting churches, which we just talked about a couple of weeks ago, founding new churches, baptizing people, going into the community, and gathering people into the house of God. And lastly, you notice that as the gospel went into the world, what did it do? Well, sometimes it falls on deaf ears, and it seems like it does a lot of that this day and age, doesn't it? Share the gospel, you share the gospel, you share the gospel. People look at you like they did Paul in Athens. We'll hear you again on this matter. And others said, he's mad because he spoke of the resurrection of, from the dead and of Christ. He seems to be a setter forth of strange gods, others said in Athens. But to some degree, to some extent, 
everywhere in the world that gospel preachers are blessed by God through the power of the Holy Spirit to take the gospel. The gospel brings fruit. The gospel brings forth fruit. What's the fruit that the gospel brings? Transformed lives. Burdens relieved. Sleepless nights taken away. Husbands and wives that used to fight like cats and dogs and struggle with substance abuse suddenly honoring God and loving one another. Moms and dads learning how to raise their children to the glory of God. The gospel brings forth fruit where the gospel is preached. Because the Holy Spirit works in the lives of God's children when they hear the gospel preached. Sometimes we think that we need special 10-step programs, special conferences, and all sorts of other things in Christianity to have effective discipleship. You know what American Christianity needs? American Christianity needs the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, for this passage of Scripture. We pray that you enable us and strengthen us as we go through this book together. Lord, we pray that it would be transformative, that it would be invigorating, that it would be liberating to us as we will learn how to avoid the legalistic tendencies while at the same time learning how to mortify sin and please you in our personal lives. Thank you, Lord, for that man Paul and that man Epaphras and these faithful saints in Colossae. We pray, Father, that we could be a lot like them, a congregation full of love and compassion, believing the grace of the gospel and truth. Forgive us of our sins in Jesus' name. Amen.